The Sunday Review with Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sunday Review. We'll be hearing how romance scams are on the increase and what to look out for to ensure you don't become a victim. Bob Smith will be telling us about the East Grinstead Record Fair that's coming up on Saturday the 18th of February and we'll be chatting to Joe Grocott from Sheffield Park and Garden about the amazing story behind Nellie's great Victorian Arctic adventure. James Keto from Samsung Mobile will be chatting to Norman Wong about how we've become a nation of digital hoarders. Carrie Overton finds out more about physiotherapy from Rebecca Flint. And Paul Tolmy talks to Karen Marsh from the Meridian Bridge Club about the card game and some beginners classes that are starting soon. All coming up in this edition. As Valentine's Day approaches, TSB are warning that romance fraud is on the increase and those aged 51 to 65 now account for almost half of all the money lost in this type of scam. Romance scammers have claimed 7,000 victims in under three years, stealing almost £65 million in that time frame. Fraud expert Paul Davis joins me now from TSB. Paul, thanks for joining me. Can you explain what romance fraud is and how it differs from other types of online scams? Yeah, thanks, Tim. Romance fraud is a very emotional type of crime. It tends to all happen on online dating sites. And, uh, you know, these can be great places to go to meet new people and start new romantic relationships. But unfortunately, it's a place also where criminals congregate. And what they do is they create fake profiles on those sites and they start chatting to people uh, you know, looking to eventually steal your cash. And once they've uh, built up a, a relationship with somebody, they'll very quickly move the topic of conversation on to money and think of imaginative uh, and often heart-wrenching reasons why they need money to be sent urgently. And um, as you said in your introduction, this is a crime that's uh, seen uh, near doubling in the last three years. And uh, of course, behind each of those cases is a very sad um, and often emotional story of somebody who's not just had their money stolen, but often their uh, confidence as well. And, uh, you know, they've been tricked into a fairly elaborate scam. What are some of the examples that you've seen then of this type of crime? There's literally no end to the stories that fraudsters will concoct to get victims to part with their cash. Most of the time, this story has some connection to financial hardship and the, and the criminal will pretend they need money urgently for perhaps medical treatment, uh, maybe uh, for home repairs, or maybe to help address cost of living issues and to pay bills. We also see some cases, and about one in 20 fall into this bracket, that involve blackmail, um, often with threats to share pictures and, and content and stories that have previously been shared with them by their victim. We also see lots of fairly elaborate stories where the criminal claims to need money to get off an oil rig or to pay a bribe to somebody overseas to release them from prison. You name it, the fraudsters will come up with literally anything uh, to uh, get their victim to pay away funds. So is this primarily just taking place on dating apps or are scammers finding other ways of communicating with their victims? More often than not, they tend to start on dating apps, but we see many cases then when fraudsters move on to different messaging platforms. We see lots of cases where victims have 
had conversations via uh, WhatsApp, text message, Snapchat, literally any messaging system. It tends to all be online. We don't see many romance scam cases where there's been real world face-to-face -face contact between the victim and the fraudster. So literally any of these online services that you might use to message somebody crop up eventually in romance cases that we see. Now, I mentioned earlier that those between 51 and 65 seem particularly vulnerable to this type of scam, but I assume they're not alone. Does the scam or amounts of money involved vary by age group? Absolutely. It's really interesting when you look at the age profile of victims, that literally anybody can fall victim to this type of scam. And we see a fairly even distribution of uh, age uh, categories when we look at the data. However, the amount of money lost uh, tends to be concentrated in that age group between 51 and 65. And as you've said, that's where we see most of the money lost, nearly half actually in that fairly narrow age range. Clearly, it's an age category where you might expect people to have accumulated more savings uh, or they might have access to pension funds. And therefore, perhaps not too much of a surprise that that's where most of the money is lost, but it's pretty concerning to see uh, that coming out so starkly in the data. Now, I imagine that many people who fall victim to this sort of scam may feel embarrassed. What steps can victims of romance fraud take, if any, to recover their losses and move forward from the experience? You're absolutely right. Because it's such an emotional crime, it can be uh, really challenging for the victim to come forward and uh, get the help they need. The, the best thing you can do if you have uh, fallen victim to this is contact your bank as soon as possible. They can help protect your account and give you advice to not lose any more money. And also, the sooner you contact the bank, the more likelihood there is that they can potentially recover some of the money that you previously sent. Um, the likelihood of you being refunded by your bank, however, is uh, fairly mixed. And it's a bit of a coin toss as to whether you'll get the money back from your bank. If these are payments that victims have made themselves and proved themselves then there's no compulsion currently on banks to reimburse victims. And across the industry, only a little more than half of money is actually reimbursed. TSB, we operate a fraud refund guarantee where we commit to reimbursing all innocent victims of fraud, which includes romance scams. But, but that's fairly unique. And across the industry, uh, the rate of refunds is, is about half. So where can people go to read some of the tips you've given us today or for help if they think they may have fallen victim to one of these scams? Sure. So the TSB website has got a fraud prevention centre that anybody can access, not just our customers. And the banking industry collectively has uh, clubbed together to create a really good website called Take 5 to Stop Fraud. And I'd encourage anyone to go there for advice, not just on romance scams, actually, but on any type of fraud doing the rounds. So take five to stop fraud is a great place to go. That's great. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Tim. For more information on romance fraud and scams in general, visit take5-stopfraud.org.uk. That's take5-stopfraud.org.uk. We'll post a direct link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. 
If you're into vinyl records or CDs, then the East Grinstead Record Fair this coming Saturday, the 18th of February, could be for you. To tell us more, I'm joined by the organiser of the event, Bob Smith. Bob, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit more about the record fair and what people can expect. Okay, well, the the, the record fair is uh, currently uh, run from the hall at the Trinity Methodist Church uh, on the Lingfield Road, A22. Um, previously, it was uh, held at the Check and Me, but uh, just the logistics of, of, of the Check and Me, just you know, I wanted to move it to where the, the, the dealers were all in the same room. And um, the venue that we've got at the moment is very, very good for that. Now, if you are coming along uh, to the record fair for the first time, it's free entry. Uh, you'll come in. There's about 25 tables of, of, of vinyl, mainly vinyl. Um, of all genres from 1950s up to current day, uh, rock, pop, soul, indie punk, whatever you want, it's all there. Um, there are uh, several uh, dealers there, um, all sort of experts, you know, usually in their own field. You know, a lot of people like to sort of sell the type of music they like. Um, so you'll have like a soul specialist, a rock uh, specialist or a punk specialist. Yeah, if you wanted to come along for a few hours uh, just to sort of browse through, relive your youth, um, I'm sure you'll you'll see all the sort of records and, and artists that you you know we all appreciated when we were young and you know and listening to music and uh, or, or you know even sort of new releases like current artists. You know, it's all there. Now, this is something you've been doing for a while, isn't it? How long have the fairs been running? Yeah, I, I, I've been running the East Grinstead Record Fair. Um, since about the end of 2016, we, we were previously at the Check of Me for about three or four years. There was the pandemic in between. So what was it that first inspired you to start organising these events? <laughs> well, I, I've been collecting records since, like, like most people, since I was a teenager. Um, that sort of coincided with the sort of punk explosion, which was the beginning, really, of record collecting um, you know, rather than people just buying records to listen to. Um, you know, that was the, the, the start of 45s being, you know, released with a, a picture sleeve or in different coloured vinyl or limited edition, um, you know. So that that was the start of it, really. But, you know, many years later, I had to sell a large part of my collection because, you know, just finances, really. Um, and then about 2016, just thought, you know what, I want to replace what I had. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to run a record fair and invited dealers in that I sort of knew over the years. Um, and, and it just went from there. You know, it's been a very, very popular uh, event. You know, we run it about five times a year. Um, you know, we try and make it as friendly as possible. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been really, really good. Now, you mentioned there that a lot of the dealers are people who are known to you. But can anyone just come along and sell records? Well, it, yeah, I mean, if I've got... If I have room, uh, you know, spare tables, then, yeah. I, I mean, I do from time to time get um, or receive contact from people that want to sell their own collection. And, in fact, at the last record fair, we did have a chat uh, that, that, that was, you know, was doing precisely that. Um, it, it's mainly, you know, people that make a living um, from selling records that, you know, that, that that's the majority of the stallholders. But, you know, I do try and leave one or two tables but new faces, i.e. people from out, outside the area, dealers mainly. But if not, if it's someone that wants to sell their own collection, then if I can, I'll try and accommodate them. 
What sort of things have happened at previous fairs? For example, have you seen particularly valuable records being sold? Well, at most record fairs, you will see, uh, you know, bargains right up to very, very collectible items. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, you know, records on display that are, you know, up there for a thousand pounds or more. You know, you know, there's there's everything at a record fair. There are there's collectible stuff, the just run of the mill stuff people want to buy just to listen to that has no real value other than, you know, the fact that they're going to be listening to it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean. It, it, the record fairs are really sort of um, unique sort of events, really. It's mainly males, strangely enough, um, you know, reliving their youth, sort of men in their 40s, 50s, you know, up to 60s and what have you. Um, occasionally we see some famous faces, you know, at the record fairs. I, I have seen Jimmy Page um, at a record fair. Um, we've also seen some TV people there. I can't remember their names, but I, I certainly recall the programs that were in. I think Mark Lamar is one. He's a big record uh, collector, loves 45s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you might not, you know, you might bump into a famous face. You never know. That's very true. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody who's perhaps interested in collecting vinyl records for the first time? Well, I, I, obviously, you know, I, I would imagine that most people will want to buy stuff that they're going to try and listen to. Um, and if you are... It's always a good idea to check the condition of a record. Um, you know, sometimes the, the, the condition of the sleeve might be deceptive. The sleeve itself might be in beautiful condition, but the record, because it's secondhand and probably been played a lot, may have not been treated so well. So it's a really good idea to always check the condition of the actual vinyl, because that's the most important piece if you're going to be listening to it. Um, in terms of uh, uh, collecting, certain labels are very, very sought after. Um, certain genres as well um, and seem to you know like for instance Northern Soul you know that, that sort of started in the late 60s or, or, or perhaps early 70s you know and in today that's really really collectible and I just don't see that you know that will ever change um, rock music as well has a big big you know uh, history that is still as popular today you know the, 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 record, the, the groups from the 60s and 70s you know, still as popular today. Um, and more lately, hip-hop has become a, um, a very, very popular genre. And, of course, you know, youngsters that are, that are sort of starting out listening to the, the, the rap artists and what have you are, are you know, interested in the, the artists that these people were, you know, influenced by. And, of course, they'll be looking back, you know, through the years of, you know, the artists and, uh, and looking for copies of their records. But again, the most important thing is to check the condition and also have a look around because sometimes one dealer can have a, a price on a record, uh, uh, you know, and, and someone else in the same room may have the same record, but maybe slightly cheaper. So, you know, look around the hall first of all before you perhaps maybe purchase anything. Um, and of course, you know, check the condition. Now, we hear a lot these days about how vinyl is having something of a resurgence. What's next for vinyl, do you think? Will we see more of it over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, I find it strange when people say there's been a resurgence because, it, it, you know, like I say, since the punk you know, explosion, that's when record collecting really started. It's never really, really gone away. Um, but, you know, in terms of vinyl... There's a chap called Stephen Wilson. I'm a big fan of Stephen Wilson. He was a, a, the main man behind a group called the Porcupine Tree. He's, he 
releases. Obviously, he streams his his music on on, on the various platforms, um, sells by CD. But he also, when he releases vinyl, he releases it in all different types of formats. And and, and I think he's been quite clever in that he knows that he's got a fan base that will want to buy each and every one of those different like formats. Um, so I think that's something that probably a lot of artists now will will think. Actually, you know, my new album, my new single, I'm going to release it like ordinary black vinyl, yellow, white, pink, you know, whatever. Um, I think it will it will help keep sales of vinyl records going. Um, and, you know, long may it continue. Fantastic. So just remind us of when and where the record fair is taking place. Okay, well, the next record fair at East Grinstead is on Saturday the 18th of February at the Trinity Methodist Church uh, which is on the corner of the Lingfield Road and the A22, just as you're entering into East Grinstead. It's a modern new building. It's of parking, um, which is free. Um, it starts at 9 o'clock. That's when the doors open. Um, ends at 3. Probably be best to get there between 9 and 2 o'clock because getting towards 3 o'clock, the dealers start getting itchy about getting home. So, you know, um, and uh, let's hope that the weather's good because that sometimes does affect uh, attendance and is there somewhere people can go to find out more information about the event the fair has its own um facebook page so if you are on social media you can look us up on facebook um if you just do an internet search there, there are i mean there are various record fairs all over the country um but if you do a, a, a search of for record fairs uh, east Grinton, there's, there's one called uk record fairs which lists, which lists all the record fairs up and down the uk uh, we're on there. That will give you details of when it is, the address, and my phone number, email address. If anybody's got any questions or or queries about the fair itself or records, and so, you know, I'm more than happy to to you know um, discuss anything with them. That's great, Bob. Thanks so much for joining us today. No problem at all. Thank you very much. So, just a reminder: the East Grinstead Record Fair is on Saturday, the 18th of February, between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. at the Trinity Methodist Church on Lingfield Road in East Grinstead. Entry and parking are free, but make sure you bring both cash and cards with you. One of the dealers will be spinning vinyl all day, so you can take a listen to something before you buy. For more details, visit the East Grinstead Record Fair page on Facebook. We'll post all the details on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Until the end of February, you can walk in the footsteps of the pioneering former owner of Sheffield Park, Nellie Soames, as she sets out on a great Victorian Arctic adventure. To tell us more, I'm joined by Joe Grocott from Sheffield Park and Garden. Joe, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a bit more about the story of Nellie Soames and her Arctic adventure? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, Nellie, her real name is Helen Peel, but she was known as Nellie. Um, she lived at Sheffield Park uh, in the early 20th century. Um, when she was a young woman of 23, um, she embarked on a journey to the Arctic Circle. And that was in 1893. And she was one of the first women to travel on, on such a journey. And she wrote a book about it called Polar Gleams. So we have lots of information about the things she saw and what she got up to while she was there. She sounds like an amazing woman. 
how did that story translate into the trail that you've created? Well, we often tell the stories of the men who lived at Sheffield Park, the Earls and Arthur Soames. And we thought it'd be really nice to delve into the story of one of the, the women that lived here. And we just thought Nellie's journey to the Arctic was so interesting and so unique that it would be a really fun story for us to tell. So what we've done is we've used her book and sort of followed her journey um, and we've laid it out in the garden with sculptures um, made by local artist Roy Kelf from recycled milk bottles to give that sort of icy impression. Um, we've got an ice cave with northern lights and cracking sounds polar bears, um, icebergs floating on the lakes and seabirds um, and mammoth skeleton emerging from the ice. Now, you mentioned that you worked with community artist Roy Kelf and I gather he also involves some local community groups. How difficult was it to create the magical Arctic landscape and sculptures using recycled plastic? Well, first we had to collect a lot of empty milk bottles uh, luckily, we're quite a busy cafe here at Sheffield Park, so um, we did manage to collect thousands of them um, over several months um, that we were able to use. Um, but Roy, being a community artist, he has lots of links with various community groups, um, and he's used to working with young people and people with special needs. Um, so we were able to engage with some of those groups to create the different pieces. Um, some of them were made last year, so this is the second uh, winter we've run this, um, with school groups. And then this year he went with a visually impaired uh, community group and they put together the, the mammoth skeleton. Now, obviously, using recycled materials is great for sustainability. What else do you hope visitors will take away from the experience? I think what um, we really like about this trail is it works on several different levels. So you've got the really interesting story of Nellie and her journey. You've got the beautiful art pieces that Roy has, uh, has made, but also um, by using the recycled plastic and thinking about where those materials have come from, it's back to um, issues, you know, right at the heart of what the National Trust is about, climate change and looking after our environment. Um, so it's, it's just a, a gentle way to, to get people thinking about that. Fantastic. So tell us when the trail is running until and how people can visit. So it's on every day until uh, the end of half term, Sunday the 26th of February. Um, usual entrance fees apply, so if you're a National Trust member, you'll get in for free. Um, and no booking required, so just turn up whenever. Excellent. And where can people go to get further information and book in advance if they wish to? So if you go to our website, uh, nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Sheffield Park, and you'll find all the information about the event. Brilliant. Joe. thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Nellie's Arctic Adventure runs daily from 10am until 3.30pm until the 26th of February. For more information and to book entry tickets, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Sheffield Park. That's nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Sheffield Park. 
We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. New research suggests that we're all digital hoarders, each keeping in the region of 10,000 photos on our phones. In fact, we're more likely to throw away childhood keepsakes than delete those photos. Earlier this week, Norman Wong spoke to James Keto from Samsung Mobile about why we're hoarding. And I think it's understandable. The smartphone has become such an integral part of our lives. It's where we store all of our precious memories, contacts and information, including, of course, photos. It's a digital memory box, as you will. And it's kind of overtaken you know, the traditional photo albums and things that we probably used to do 10, 15 years ago. And so what we've seen is that more and more people are storing more and more photos on their phone, and that, which is great. Uh, and we don't want to stop people doing that. And of course, we want to give people the opportunity to take fantastic photos. But what it does mean is that you need enough memory on your phone in order to do it and to store them and to store them efficiently. And what we are seeing is that some customers in the wider market are having to delete stuff in order to take new stuff. We don't think that's a good solution. We don't think that's what mobile customers should be doing. But you're absolutely right. I and mean, I've got about 15 or 16,000 odd shots on my phone. And our research showed that many, many people have over 10,000. And it's just growing almost exponentially. So it's a problem that's only going to get bigger, which is why we're doing something about it. And we're certainly doing something about it with the new S23 range. So is one of the consequences of having too much on our phones. And is our phones likely to slow down or, and work inefficiently? Look, I, th I think not necessarily. I think what's important is that you've got enough memory on there to, to keep pace with what you want to do as a user. What we're seeing is customers are owning their phones for a little bit longer. You know, the replacement cycle is about every two and a half to three and a half years, and it really depends on, on the customer and, and when they want to upgrade. But we're future-proofing these devices. You know, if you want to hold it for longer and own it for longer, that's fine. We want to make sure that you have both a really robustly built phone that's going to last, the hardware is going to last. From a software point of view, we want to make sure you have regular updates to the operating system and to security patches to make sure that every day you use that phone, you know that you are safe and secure and you're not going to be you know, have, have issues with regards to accessing the internet, etc. So that's one thing we're seeing and we're addressing. The other one of this course is to make sure that you know, we respond to what customers are doing out there. And that is taking more photos more regularly. So it's not necessarily going to slow your phone down, but it will absolutely slow you down if in order to take a new photo, you're going to have to find space by deleting old ones just to make a, a few more megabytes available. That is definitely going to slow you down from taking those great shots that you want to take. As we discussed, photographs are our memories that are sentimental reasons for keeping the photographs. However, I guess if we take 25 or more selfies before we find that winner, then the sheer volume of content can easily become overwhelming. Is that what the study found? And we've all been there. We, we sometimes take multiple shots of the same thing. I think what we want to try and do is empower you to take the right shot first time, you know, and, and that's where our advanced technology comes into play. Our camera tech in the latest S23 is genuinely gap groundbreaking. We put a sensor inside this phone that you would not normally see even on a, a very, very expensive high-end professional camera. We're giving that to people who are investing in the S23 uh, so that many, many more people can take the types of photography that previously was just almost impossible to make. That means you will take the best shot right first time in any conditions. I think importantly, the moments we want to take great photos are sometimes low light in the pub, maybe at a concert, at a gig, whatever it might be. And it's in that environment you want to get it right first time. You don't have time to maybe take five or ten different shots and choose the right one. So we're equipping you with a camera that will take the best shot uh, straight out the blocks really, really, really capably in any lighting conditions. Digital photographs have become, our, you know, as we've mentioned, our treasured possessions. We have an emotional attachment to them. But before we upgrade, is there anything we can do to prevent hoarding? 
take one great photo, not ten average photos, and I think that's where we can help with with our camera tech. I think your your listeners will will resonate with this. That you know, the Samsung phone has always taken fantastic photos. I'm pretty sure there's many of your listeners there who are you know, the de facto photographer within their social group they're the one that takes the photo and their mates say hey listen can you send me that and we're seeing that trend and we want to champion that that's fantastic you know that actually it's the samsung camera that continues to be the one that's that's taking the best photos if you take the best photo right first time you're going to have to take less photos so that's one way to to reduce that count i think it's just a trend that we're seeing right which is more people are taking more photos and so what you really need to do to solve that problem is ensure you've got enough storage on that phone to house all those photos because i think us taking less photos is probably not going to happen so let's make sure we can put those and keep those photos on our phone for longer by having enough storage to uh, to do exactly that and right now we've increased the memory you get on all of our phones anyway and for pre-order which is running right now you get the opportunity to double that memory up so you're going to get 512 gigabytes if you if you pre-order the s23 ultra and that's double the basic memory that you get on that phone which is already an incredible and staggering 256 gigs so what i'm saying there is that there is a load of memory available far more than you'd be getting on you know on your current phone or indeed your competitor product if you have one them so never been a better time to come across to, to samsung and future proof your your decision so is the amount of storage one of the most important features that people consider when choosing a smartphone rather than battery life screen size etc i think what we see is camera still leads having a fantastic camera and we've always led there we continue to innovate and bring brilliant cameras into our range of products including obviously what we're bringing to market today so that's that's top of the list alongside that of course and it goes hand in glove you need storage in order to take advantage of a great camera so those two things really coexist and then of course it's a fantastic screen that's super bright in any condition Samsung absolutely delivers there we continue to push forward the technology that goes into our screen and then you need a fantastic battery you need to ensure that your phone is going to last and last through the day and into the following one and that's where we've also made big big strides forwards we put a brand new processor into the heart of these new phones you don't need to know really what it's called you just need to know what it does and that is it is incredibly powerful and incredibly efficient it means it uses that battery power really really efficiently allowing that battery to last even longer so those are really the core drivers that are that are pushing people or or making people think about what product to buy uh, when they're looking to upgrade their phone if we could just quickly go back to hoarding again or digital hoarding yeah. did the study identify a relationship between digital hoarding and physical hoard because physical hoarding seems to be a popular phenomenon in terms of tv and media at least it didn't specifically draw a connection between the two. I think what it's certainly recognizing is that from a digital perspective, we are gathering and collecting so much more now digitally than we ever have, partly because we're using so much more technology in the last few years, in the last 10 or so years, than we ever have. So I think it's a, it's a trend that's starting to really accelerate and ramp up alongside physical hoarding and i think the interesting point of the study was that actually people are more likely to throw away physical goods and assets than they are to clear out their old digital assets so it's kind of it's drawing that parallel between the two different types of hoarding but really this is saying that there's a massive trend towards storing stuff on your phones taking great photos videos downloading obviously playlists you know movies to watch etc and in order to do that to collect all those digital data points all those files you need a lot of memory on your phone in order to do so and that's why we're really addressing that pain point with this new range alongside of course continuing to bring out bring out 
massive evolutions in our in our innovation every year we do that we don't hold back our innovation we give our customers the very latest innovation because we believe that's what's right for us it's about ensuring we give you the innovation that's available today well i did a little survey of, of my own this morning with those around me and of four people we checked that we had 26,000 16,000 10,000 and 6,000 photographs wow. stored on their phones. Well, there you go. And in a few years' time, you'll, you, know, you can probably count on doubling that, right, given the amount of photos we take. Uh, and also, you know, don't take my word for it in terms of camera tech. The camera tech we now have on the S23 is, uh, is being used by Ridley Scott more recently. We gave him this phone uh, and we asked him to shoot an entire movie on it. And now Ridley is a pretty uh, discerning character when it comes to taking movies on some of the finest cameras available in the movie industry. He's shot a quite brilliant beautiful movie using this phone and so i think if it's good enough for ridley then it's good enough for us to take some great home movies and some great snaps and shots of the family and really do ourselves justice and then hopefully have something that's completely shareable you know that's where we want to champion that that social photographer in your group that person who probably has the samsung phone in your social group already and they're the one that's the de facto camera person they're the one that's taking the photos and more often than not you'll hear them being asked can you send me that and it's just such a true thing that happens in the real world, which is like the Samsung camera owner takes the photo and their friends are asking him to share it with them because it's the best photo taken that evening, that night. Well, it's really interesting. You mentioned that Ridley Scott is uh, using the smartphone for making a movie. So thanks, James, for joining us today on 107 Meridian FM. And before you go, can you tell our listeners where they can find more information about this uh, super smartphone that Samsung has? Of course. Well, you can go down to samsung.com, uh, check out all the details there. You can pre-order now. If you pre-order now, you can trade in your old phone, get great value. I think we'll surprise you with the value you'll get for your old S9, S10 or S20. Whatever phone it is, doesn't have to be a Samsung. You can trade it in. You'll get great value there. And we'll also give you the offer of doubling the storage on your phone so you have more than enough storage to see you through how you're going to start to take some epic photos over the course of the next few years. So yeah, samsung.com is the place to check out and find out more details. James Keto from Samsung Mobile talking there to Norman Wong earlier this week. On Wellbeing Weekly on Tuesday, Carrie Overton spoke to Rebecca Flint about the work she does as a physiotherapist. I'm a home visiting physiotherapist, so I, I'm not based in a clinic. I come out to people's homes um, and uh, see people who, for, for whatever reason, getting to a clinic just isn't practical. Mm. So whether it's um, that they live in a um, nursing or residential home or their mobility um, is impaired in some way. Um, many of my clients are bed bound or they've recently left hosp hospital. And so just getting to a clinic is, is really difficult for them. So I see them in their own environment. That's amazing that I've never heard of that as a service. You know, you always think of having to go to a physiotherapy clinic or something like that. Mm. So there must be a lot of people who need that as a service. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, as I say, I see uh, quite a few people that have come out of hospital mm. um, and they may have been working on some therapy goals or rehab goals in hospital. And then that needs to continue in their own environment. And mm. what's what's perfect about seeing people at home is that I can see exactly what they need to be able to do in their own home. Uh, so they might practice the stairs in the hospital, but that's a hospital set of stairs. Yeah. And actually their stairs are really steep or they've got a turn in them or the steps outside their back door are really difficult to negotiate. And, and they might have had a fall down them in the past. So it's, it's being able to actually see exactly what somebody needs to do in their home. And that must be really reassuring for them because there's a, I, I guess I hadn't thought about it like that, but there's a very sort of a theoretical 
you know, do these exercises. But for somebody to actually manage it in their own environment is very different, isn't it? It is. It is really different. It's just even the practicalities of where they might do their exercises. Yeah. So whether it's easy for them to be able to get on their bed if they've got some exercises they need to do in their in lying down. Yeah. Or if they're they're standing, they might have a very big kitchen or a very small kitchen if they need to do some standing exercises. Um, and again, some people, you know, that might have lots of steps, um, you know, leading in or out of a door. Um, so when we're talking about therapy goals what I might think somebody's goal is might be really different to what they actually want to achieve so they might um, not be worried about um, being able to climb their stairs to go upstairs they might be living downstairs at the time when they come out of hospital but they really want to be able to access their garden because it's you know hopefully we've got some nice weather coming up and they really want to be able to get out into their garden to feed the birds because that's part of their daily routine and that's more important to them than necessarily being able to go upstairs. So it sounds like a really quite bespoke service that you offer people Mm. rather than I think in my head I'd thought of physiotherapy as oh, I don't know sports injuries yes and that's usually what the, <laughs> the first people when you tell people that you're a physiotherapist they usually come up with their their various aches and pains um <laughs> and certainly that's a huge part of the it's a it's a huge profession right. um and there are so many specialties within it so you've got your sports therapies you've got the the, the sports physio that runs onto a football pitch you've got your clinics um that help people that have got bad backs um you have oh it's it's huge within the hospital you've got the respiratory physiotherapists that go on to intensive care and be working um, on on the wards um, so what I do is I'm I'm out my my caseload is predominantly older people not exclusively at all um, but I do see people that have quite complex health needs right. uh, so lots of them have long-term conditions um, might be neurological conditions they might have had a stroke they might have parkinson's um, different respiratory conditions uh, all sorts of different things and and actually for for the majority of the people i see they have a combination of things um, so uh, life can be quite complicated and can involve a lot of different hospital appointments and mm. and it can be quite complex to be able to fit into what can often be quite a short appointment time in in um in a clinic environment it's taking more of a holistic view. Yeah. So it's looking at the whole picture. Mm. Um, so as I say, a lot of people have have complex needs and sometimes people are really in tune with their health needs and they really want to know and they want to absorb as much information as they can about what's what they've been diagnosed with. Others actually just want to know how to get on with their life. Yeah. Like, I take these tablets or I do this or, you know, how do I get back to my social club? How do I get back to, to doing something? Um, so I try to spend as much time as I can understanding that individual and finding out what's important to them mm. um, and I certainly don't go in with armfuls of exercises that's right. not how I work yeah. at all it's looking really functionally like I said earlier it's about you know if they want to get into the garden if they want to be able to bend down to pick up their cat food bowl yes. um to be able to feed the cat it's it's things like that it's like what do you want to be able to do and let's try and work with that um and normally just giving maybe a couple of exercises but it's about um sort of more of a functional approach mm. rather than giving lists of things so what brought you to physiotherapy i went straight from school to university and and my degree was physiotherapy right so i always wanted to do something health related 
Um, and of course, as a young child, you, you don't know all the different things that are available. So you sort of go through nursing. And then I got quite interested in therapies. Um, I looked at the different therapy options, but I love the human body. I love anatomy. Mm. It just, it's, we are incredible. We're mm. incredible as humans and how we work. Um, so I love finding out about how the body works. Um, and physiotherapy actually struck me as just something where I would be given the opportunity to have time with people. Um, mm. And and it's it feel it felt really meaningful. Mm. Um, so I went straight from um, school into university, and then from there went into the NHS. I've, I was brought up in East Grinstead, so I'm oh, local. Right, okay. <laughs> um, and I worked locally from university. And once you qualify, you you become a junior physio, and you go around all the specialties. You spend a few months, um, sort of learning more about each specialism. Right. So um, I did my we call them rotations. And then um, I then got an opportunity to work on an elderly care ward Mm. as a more senior therapist. Mm. Um, And so I did that. And then I had an opportunity to move into the community. And I spent about 12 years working in a fantastic multidisciplinary team. I was working directly alongside um, nurses, occupational therapists, the social care team. We had an amazing team and I learned so much from all my colleagues. Um, And I also spent some time, three years as a community matron, working with clients with long-term health needs. So Mm. working between them and the GPs, trying to prevent hospital admissions, ultimately. Right. So help them managing their their conditions at home. So there were people that were at really high risk of going into hospital. Uh, So I worked with them. Amazing. Because I mean, I imagine it's really important to try and keep people out of hospital because... Well, for many reasons, I suppose, but but mobility being one of them, because the hospital staff, there aren't the resources I would imagine within a hospital to keep somebody's physical therapy no, going. No, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, it's it's really sad that so many people contact me saying that maybe their relative went into hospital and they were mobile and for whatever reason they might have gone into hospital it could have been a fall it could have been illness of course there's a reason they went in but they've come out and their mobility is much reduced and Mm. of course I spent a long time working in the hospital I know the pressures that that the staff are under there and it can be really difficult trying to maintain somebody's mobility Um, and of course the whole point that the person was there was that they may have been poorly yeah Um, so they weren't able to to um, keep their fitness how do you find now that you're not part of that multidisciplinary team? Because, you know, you use the word holistic and it sounds like your approach is a very holistic approach. Does what you do now sort of touch on some of those other aspects that you would have had other people in the team doing? It does. I mean, of course, I've, I've got to keep my professional boundaries. I'm a physio. I'm not, I'm not a nurse. I'm not yeah. an occupational therapist, but um, I've, I have quite a rounded approach. Right. Um, but also I work, um, quite a few of the people I see are in local nursing and residential homes. So I sort of have that team spirit working alongside the nurses in the homes, the carers in the homes, even the people that I'm seeing in their own homes. Mm a lot of them have care packages so I'm trying to really work with the carers and I'm I'm ultimately trying to make things easier for the carers Mm -hmm. and for the client themselves because if somebody can walk themselves to the bathroom and have a wash Mm -hmm. that's easier Mm. and more dignified and nicer than necessarily having a bed bath or having um sort of more support the more someone can do for themselves and maintain as much independence as possible Mm. the the better it is for them and and their carers as well what does i don't know if there's is such a thing 
it's a typical session what does it look like though if someone sees you uh well it does depend on what they've called me for Mm -hmm. um so often I my initial assessment I want to gather as much information about somebody's medical history as possible um often family members might be present Mm -hmm. if the person can't um if they're not very good at remembering sort of some Mm -hmm. of their their medical history I see a lot of people that have got um, cognitive impairment or dementia um and then I'll have a look at what they're able to do so I say depending what it is so somebody might call me if if, for example they've had a fall and they've lost their confidence because they've fallen then I'll have a look at um their muscle strength their balance go through um different sort of balance exercises with them to see sort of get a baseline level of how they are Mm. And then we work together to, to make some goals. So it's really patient-centred. Um, I want to know what their goals are. Um, and then we work at how we might be able to achieve them. Um, some people, it's more of a case of maintaining their current mobility mm. or um, their function. Mm. Um, some people might have a condition where actually they're not necessarily going to get stronger, but we want to try and maintain the level that they're at for as long as possible. Um, and then I sometimes see people as just a one-off session. I just see them once, right. give them some advice and, and they're fine. And other people I see three times a week and everyone else fits in the middle somewhere. Okay, so <laughs> real, spread. real spread. Yes. So how long if, would an in, uh, if somebody came to see you for the first time to have that initial assessment, how long might that last? Um, I always say an hour. I always seem to overrun that, but it's meant to be an hour. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, an hour-ish yeah. usually for the, for the first assessment. And then my follow-ups are usually 45 minutes. Right. Sometimes they're a little bit less, sometimes they're a bit more, but I generally say a 45-minute follow-up appointment because that gives us time to um, to review how things are going. Mm. If there's any changes, we can change it and we can mm. go through exercises together as well. Um, sometimes, especially now the weather's starting to improve, we might do outdoor mobility right. if somebody's able to. Um, so, yes, lots, always lots to work on with people. And as I say, it depends what they've, what they've come to me for. Um, uh, for, for certain conditions, there might be particular things that we're trying to to achieve or managing symptoms, managing pain, managing breathlessness, mm. uh, managing fatigue. Uh, so what's normal for one person is going to be different for another. Mm. And I, I have to spend quite a lot of time working out what's somebody's normal. Right. Um, and that's what we're trying to get back to. Rebecca Flint speaking there to Carrie Overton. If you'd like to find out more about the work Rebecca does, visit flintphysiotherapy.co.uk. That's flintphysiotherapy.co.uk. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On his mid-morning show on Tuesday, Paul Tolmy spoke to Karen Marsh from the Meridian Bridge Club about the card game and some beginner's classes that are starting soon. It's it's quite an easy game to learn, and once yeah. you've mastered the basics of bridge, you can play bridge anywhere at any time, mm. and it's up to you as an individual, really, how far you want to take it. I've been playing bridge for 30 years, and I'm still learning, and I know people who've only been playing for a couple of years who play incredibly well and uh, still do very, very well. So it's it's really up to the individual how far they want to go with the game. Mm. How far can you go? Is there sort of like a professional standard? Or? There, there is a professional standard and there wow. are professional bridge players. Um, you can play for your country. You can play in uh, inter-country tournaments. You can play in world world tournaments. You can play face-to-face. You can play online. Um, in the UK, there is a, uh, the English Bridge Union, which has a national grading system. So you can look at yourself and see how well you're doing. That's if you play in a club. 
Or you can just play socially around the kitchen table with a glass of wine and a packet of crisps. It's really up to the individual what Sounds they want good to, to me. do. So you are the chair of the Meridian Bridge Club. Yes. And uh, you guys meet on the Thursday? Yes, we meet every uh, Thursday afternoon at um, East Grinstead Rugby Football Club, uh, who have made us incredibly welcome. Um, we offer refreshments and uh, lunches as well. Uh, in the afternoons, we play duplicate bridge, which is 24 boards. Um, and it normally lasts, the session lasts for about three hours. And in the mornings, we offer supported uh, bridge sessions uh, with refreshments again from 10 o'clock onwards. Anyone can come along and just sit and play uh, casual bridge. We do a little bit of teaching as well, but uh, you can sit and play bridge. And if you need help, there are uh, experts there on hand to help you uh, look at your bidding or your card play and with a little bit of teaching as well. And that's a very friendly session, normally about three tables, um, but we can take lots more people. If anybody would like to come and join us, they're always very welcome. So there is, I didn't realise there were several types. So there's, there's contract bridge. Yes. And there's auction bridge. There's contract bridge. There's Chicago bridge. There's rubber bridge. There's duplicate rubber bridge. bridge. Wow. <laughs> there's there's teams. even more than I thought there were. Yes, there's, you can you can play bridge in, in in many different ways. I personally prefer to play duplicate bridge because it's competitive, mm. and you're playing against other people, so you know you get an idea of how your play is. But you can also play uh, casual bridge. I do play casual bridge occasionally with friends at home or in other people's houses, and we might add lunch onto it. It's very social. Uh, we have a lot of fun mm. as well. Um, it really is up to the individual how what kind of bridge they want to play. And when you when you when you uh, we were saying just before we came on air that you had to obviously move online because of the because of COVID. Yes. Is it easier to play it online or, or is it easier in person? I think it's easier to, it is a lot easier to, to, to play it online, but then you're very isolated. Yeah, of I course. Mean, during COVID, I played at home online uh, nearly every day. I've played on the ferry in the middle of the Bay of Biscay. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, but I prefer to play face-to-face -face bridge yeah. because it's very friendly. And you might play two boards, then you have a little rest and you have a chat. You might have a cup of coffee, then you play a couple of more boards. You know, so you're... You're talking to people all the time and meeting lots of different people, which is great. And there could be people out that are listening this morning who, who love the game but just don't even realise it's there and just don't have the means to go out and think, oh, well, that's great, let's, let's, let's go along and meet, you know, meet people. I'm sure there are lots of bridge uh, players out there who, who, who are playing at home socially who don't belong to a club, mm. and I would urge them to join a club. Not only does it improve your bridge but you know you get to meet lots of new people make new friends mm. and we do have lots of social events as well which people enjoy brilliant so you've got your 12-week course starting in may yes this is a beginner's course it's for people who've never played bridge before in their life um don't be frightened um we take it really slowly and uh, after a 12-week course you will be able to sit and play a game of bridge and then if you want to take it further, you can then move on to our supported sessions, which will be running at the same time. And then from that into Duplicate Bridge, if that's what you want. But the beginner's course is specially designed for people who like playing card games. Perhaps you might be a whist player uh, who, who want to learn to play bridge um, in a nice sort of relaxed, friendly environment. Um, five a week. That's very Yes, I think very cheap, actually, yeah. for, for bridge lessons. I know other mm. clubs that charge three times that amount wow. um, and it includes free tea coffee biscuits um there will be a, a manual to purchase if you want to 
But other than that, I think it's very reasonable. Mm. Just helps us to pay the rent, really. We're not wanting to make any money out of it at all. No, of course. Obviously, you don't have to wait till May. You've got your sessions running at the moment every Thursday at the the rugby club. So that's great. So um, people can can just turn up. Um, we, we have got a very comprehensive website with some contact numbers on it. Um, we do like to know if you're coming simply because it means we can organise yeah, the room um, uh, appropriately. But if you want to come along and play, just ring Linda Souter, her email address and phone numbers on the website. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll do our very best to find you a partner. You might already have a partner that you want to bring with you and just come and play. And it, it, alternatively, if you want to come to a supported session in the morning, you don't need a partner. Um, I'm there every week, and if somebody doesn't have one, I sit down and play bridge with them, which I really enjoy doing. Uh, it's really up to you, but you know, if you would like to come, we're always pleased to see you. Or if you want to talk about the course or discuss your level of play or you'd like some more information, just go onto the website and call either Linda or I, and we're happy to talk to anybody at any time. There's a very nice photo, actually, on their website. and That's the, that's the rugby club, is it? Yes, we're playing at... Um, East Grinstead Rugby Club. We moved there a couple of years ago um, after COVID. It looks like a very nice space to... So yes, it's to, a lovely yeah. big room with a very modern bar. Um, they provide lunches for us and they also do special meals for us at Christmas um, for our anniversary lunch and at, uh, in the summer we have a party. Um, and we've got a lovely view from their top floor there. You can see the whole of East Grinstead while you're sitting playing bridge and there's a very nice outdoor uh, outside terrace, roof terrace, uh, where members like to go and sit and have lunch before we play. Mm. A lot of people come early um, specifically to uh, and order a lunch uh, to socialise with their friends and have a glass of wine or a, or a pint, whatever you choose. So really. it's, it's so much more than just a bridge club. It's the, it's, it's the social element. People can come and make friends and then... Yes, it's a, it's a very uh, sociable game yeah. uh, where you can meet lots of new people. I've m- made lots of um, friends playing bridge and also you can play bridge anywhere in the world at any time i used to live overseas and the first thing i did when i lived overseas was went and joined the local bridge club where i was always made very welcome and i made you've instant friends i think mm. if you play bridge so anywhere any time even in the middle of the night if you can't sleep you can go online and there'll be thousands of people all playing bridge this is quite strategic uh, yes, it is. It is. There are lots of conventions that you can learn. You can make it as simple as you want to or as difficult as you want it to. And then there's the play of the cards mm. as well, which is quite tricky. But we do give lessons in card play and, and opening leads and how to certain bridge conventions, we teach those as well. So some of it's skill, but some of it can be luck. Uh, occasionally, yes, you yeah. do get lucky. If somebody leads the wrong card <laughs> or plays the wrong card <laughs> and you might get a little present. Um, but um, most of the time, it, it, it's a good thinking game. Yeah. It makes you use your brain. Mm. Uh, it's good brain exercise, particularly as you get older. Bridge players are far more alert and sleep better and stay active much longer than people who don't play bridge, apparently, according to Stirling University. Wow, that's <laughs> interesting. Just run us through again what you've got for your uh, your different sessions. Yes, we have a, a supported session every Thursday morning at 10 o'clock. Anybody can come along and get a game of bridge in a really relaxed, friendly uh, atmosphere. And there are expert teachers uh, on hand to help you with your bidding or your card play. Or, or alternatively, you can just sit and play a game. Um, those finish about 12, and if you want to, you can stay on for lunch. Um, the rugby club provides um, 
refreshments and, and lunches for us. And then in the afternoons, we run a duplicate session. It starts at one o'clock and finishes about four o'clock. Um, and that's 24 boards. And we normally have about nine tables. That's 36 people all sitting playing bridge in the afternoons. Mm. And we normally play two boards. Then you have a little rest and a chat. And then you move on and play a couple more. And so on throughout the afternoon. Very sociable, relaxed, friendly environment. Karen Marsh, chair of the Meridian Bridge Club, chatting there to Paul Tolmy. If you'd like to know more about the beginners course they're running or fancy joining them for a game of bridge, visit bridgewebs.com forward slash meridian. That's bridgewebs.com forward slash meridian. And that's it for the latest edition. We've got all the information on the features you've heard today on Twitter at SundayReview107 or on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. I'll be back on air next Sunday morning from 10am on 107 Meridian FM or on meridianfm.com or you can download the latest podcast. Until then, take care and have a great week ahead.